All right, good morning. If you are just kind of popping in this morning for the first time, we are taking the fall and we're studying the Sermon on the Mount together. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is probably one of the most popular parts of the entire Bible. Chances are, if you're here, to, here today, maybe you didn't grow up in church, uh, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, chances are you could still probably even spot some of it. Turn the other cheek, uh, the plank in your own eye, go the extra mile. It's got some of the most memorable parts in all of the Bible, yet as we've been seeing the last couple weeks, it's more than just these kind of pithy statements from Jesus to live by. No, instead what's happening here is Jesus is giving us this gracious invitation to find true flourishing, true wholeness, the truly good life in the rule and reign of God that comes in the death and resurrection of the Son of God for us. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Mark, or sorry, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 30 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some paperback Bibles on those back tables there. Uh, you can open up to it. It's on page 898 today. But Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 30 is where we're going to be spending our time today. This is what Jesus says. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still on the way together, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now in the passage just before this, Jesus gives us his thesis his big idea for everything he's about to say in the Sermon on the Mount. And his, it's pretty startling. Jesus' big idea is this. The Pharisees, the people who one children's Bible called the extra super holy people, people who kept all the rules, all of them, they don't make the cut for God's kingdom. And in fact, if you want to, you've got to be greater than them. You've got to be more righteous, Jesus says, than the most righteous people on the face of the earth. And now what Jesus is talking about here isn't a matter of quantity, but quality. 
What he's talking about isn't obeying more rules than the Pharisees, but obeying them for different reasons than the Pharisees did. You see, the Pharisees had built up this whole form of religion that focused solely on external obedience. For them, their religion was all about the letter of the law and not the heart of the law. And so Jesus' big idea in the Sermon on the Mount is that God's always been after both. God doesn't just care what you do, he also cares why you did it. This is what Jesus means when he says that we need a greater righteousness. We need a whole person devotion to God that cares not just about the letter of the law, but cares about the heart of it too. And he says it's here in this whole person devotion to God that Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount that we will truly find flourishing, that we will find the truly good life. And to show us what it looks like, he gives us some examples. In the passage we looked at last week, this week, the one we'll look at next week, but the two that we're looking at today, I think these are probably the most urgent two for us to be looking at. You see, if you were to look it's just kind of our culture, our society today that we're all a part of. And you were to kind of poke around a little bit until you found some of the pain points, until you found where some of the bruises are, I think you would land on what Jesus is talking about today. Anger and sex. I mean, think about it. When you look at the way that we talk to each other, just out in public, whether that's online or in person, about anything meaningful at all. And the amount of palpable tension that is in it, where we just draw lines in the sand and fight it out. Or you look at the way that we relate to each other sexually. You listen to stories of women about how they've been used by someone else for their gratification. Is this really what we thought the good life would look like? Would we really say that we're thriving today in these areas? I think if we're being honest, no. And yet Jesus is showing us today that in his kingdom, this whole person devotion that he's calling us to, this is where we will find the good life. And so in order to see what Jesus is talking about, there's three things we've got to look at this morning that get to the heart of God's law, of us, and ultimately Jesus himself. We've got to see the tongue, the eye, and the cross. So first, the tongue. Jesus first shows us how this whole person devotion that he's calling us to in his kingdom helps us see our words in a new light. And he does that by helping us see what really lies at the heart of murder. He says in verse 21, you've heard it said to a people long ago, you shall not murder. And if anyone murders, they will be subject to judgment. Now, what Jesus is talking about here, this is the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments that were, these were the big E on the eye chart of God's law, right? Every Jewish person that he'd be talking to in this time would know exactly what he was talking about. And it was one that actually a lot of Jewish people didn't have any problem following. Like murder in this time in Jewish community is something that, that just didn't really happen a whole lot. And so because of that, the Pharisees, who were kind of leading the culture at that time, who had built up this religion that focused all on just kind of this external obedience, they kind of thought, well, hey, essentially what that's saying is, as long as I haven't struck someone down this week in cold blood, I can check the box off on that one. 
And then Jesus pulls the lid back on that whole line of thinking with these three jarring statements. He says in verse 22, but I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now there's three words here that help us make sense of these three statements. Anger, Raka, and fool. The last two make sense of the first. To say raka to someone was insulting their intelligence. All right, it'd be like if I called you an idiot today. And the word fool, it's actually coming from this Hebrew word, but it's in the Greek here, and it's talking about insulting someone's character. So in other words, what Jesus is saying here isn't that all anger of any kind is wrong. No, that's not the case at all. Right, there is a such thing as righteous anger where you are rightly defending someone made in God's image. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is talking about isn't defending someone but destroying someone made in God's image. Three words to describe this same destructive type of anger and three explanations of the same consequence. Judgment, court, and hell. Now do you see what Jesus is doing here? He said, okay, do you see the connection that he's making between the letter of the law and the heart of the law? He says, all right, we all knew that if you murdered somebody, you'd face God's judgment, but if you're angry at someone and insult them, you're going to face God's judgment too. And now here's a lot of times maybe how maybe you've heard these verses described. Jesus is basically saying, okay, new rules, everybody. Now if you're angry at someone, it's the same as murder. Now lust is the same thing as adultery. In other words, what he's doing is just kind of flattening everything out and saying, now all sin is the same. There's no distinction at all between them. I actually don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. Words hurt. We'd all know that. In fact, that's part of what Jesus is getting at here. I think we'd all agree, though, there's a difference between being angry at one of your kids and maybe saying something that you wish you had back afterwards. There's a difference between that and giving them a black eye. Now, he's not flattening out all sin here and saying, all right, now everything's just the same. What he's doing is merely restating what the prophets in the Old Testament had already said before him. That in God's kingdom, thoughts are no less culpable than our actions. That this greater righteousness, this whole person devotion that God wants for us, cares just as much about murder as it does as about our destructive anger that's at the heart of murder. And now, this is entirely different then I think a lot of times the way we interact with ourselves today. Uh, the way that we talk to each other today about anything meaningful, politics, gender, race, the way we talk to each other about it, whether it's online, in person, oftentimes is best described as just pure outrage. I mean, think about it. When is the last time you were on Facebook 
how long did you have to scroll through your newsfeed before you found some three-paragraph-long scathing rebuke that someone had posted about someone else on the opposite end of whatever opinion it was that was being talked about? And the thing is, this outrage and how we talk to each other, it's not just a characteristic of our culture. No, this has become a virtue of our culture today. This is something that we applaud and celebrate and we encourage more of in people. Um, Amy Olberding, she's a, a philosophy professor at University of Oklahoma. Um, she's a really smart woman, she's not a Christian at all. She wrote uh, an essay in an online journal about the internal appeal that she feels to join in this culture of outrage today. And listen, just listen to one snippet here of what she says. Awful people are just awful. And there is a giddy, triumphal pleasure in announcing just how low they sit in my opinion. If I don't really respect you, it feels quite good to deny you the conventions that conceal my disdain. In other words, what Olberding is being more honest about than even I'm probably honest about is this internal drive that we all feel to vent our destructive anger. To, as she puts it later in the article, set my inner junkyard dog off the leash. Now, C.S. Lewis, the famous author, he put it this way, he said, the pleasure of anger the gnawing attraction which makes one return again and again to its themes lies, I believe, in the fact that one feels entirely righteous when one is angry. The other person is pure black, and you are pure white. You see, what our destructive anger does is it takes people made in God's image and it turns them into an object. Think about it, in that moment, they are no longer a person, they're them. And even though we haven't physically hurt them, our anger and outrage, it's still destroying that person's personhood in that moment. And that's a problem to God, because he made them. He made that person in his image. If they're a Christian, he put his spirit inside them, his son died for them. And so he says, this is why the heart of the law matters to me, this is why you don't get to go and destroy someone, not just physically, but also with your words, because I love that person, and I made them. So let me ask you this. When is the last time you've set your inner junkyard dog off the leash? When is the last time you said something in the moment that just kind of cut the other person in half? You know, maybe, maybe it wasn't about politics. Uh, maybe it was about who's picking up the kids from school, uh, about which family you're going to stay with for the holiday. And now some of us might be thinking, I actually don't do that a whole lot. Yeah, I don't really just kind of come unhinged and lash out at people. Uh, I don't like confrontation at all. It's really not my thing. For some of us, that, that's true to a certain degree. It's, it's our temperament. We're just kind of steady, collected people. So when have you thought it, but just didn't say it? Because if I'm being honest, that's my problem. 
Uh, if you get to know me at all, you'll know I'm, I'm a pretty uh, steady, collected guy, right? I don't get very high, I don't get really low. To a fault sometimes. My problem isn't, you know, that I'm out there venting my anger. My problem is I get angry and I just bottle it up, right? I don't necessarily let my junkyard dog off the leash. I do keep feeding him, though, and he gets big. Until eventually, you know what happens? I do let him loose on somebody, and they go, oh my gosh, I had no clue for the last six months you've been walking around angry with me about that. Why, why didn't you just say something to me the first time? From Facebook to our living rooms, from saying it out loud to thinking it in our heads, none of us on our own fully capture the heart of the law that Jesus is talking about here. But he gives us a couple pictures of what it looks like when we do. In verse 23, Jesus says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversaries taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary might hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and the officer throw you in prison. I tell you, you won't get out till you paid the last penny. See, what Jesus is showing us here is what it looks like when this whole person devotion that God wants for us, when that takes over our lives. When we become concerned not just with the letter of the law, but the heart of it too, we become someone who urgently reconciles with other people around us. And did you see who's at fault in these verses? Jesus doesn't say, all right, when you're going to give your gift at the altar or when you know, you're on your way to court with someone and you remember, you know what, I'm, I'm angry at you about this. It's okay, be the bigger man, go and do the first thing, reconcile with them. No, Jesus says when you realize you've provoked someone else to anger, when you have made someone else so frustrated with you that they're the point of almost sinning, they're so angry with you, Jesus says, don't wait. Go and reconcile with them. You see, when this whole person devotion comes over us, when we become gripped, not just by the letter of the law, but the heart of it too, what it does is it makes us see people in a whole new way. It makes us see people the way God sees them. It makes us concerned not just about our anger, but the anger that I provoke in other people too. Because we know how destructive that anger is. We know how it destroys not just the person we're angry at, but I know how it destroys me on the inside. We become so concerned not just with wanting to see ourselves flourish, but see everyone else flourish because that's what God wants too. And so Jesus says when you realize you provoke someone to anger, don't wait. Come to them and say, gosh, what, what did I do? Let's not worry about you for a second. What did I do to make you respond this way? So first, we see the tongue. Second, we see the eye. Jesus shows us how this whole person devotion helps us to look at what we look at in a new light. And he does that by showing us what sits at the heart of adultery. In verse 27, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And what he's talking about here isn't um, referring to just kind of acknowledging someone's natural beauty. 
right? Jesus isn't saying, you know, that you can't just recognize that there's someone, whatever it is for you, that you just find naturally attractive. I don't know what it is. Maybe, you know, they got the chiseled jawline, everything's in proportion, they work out, you know, they're in shape. They're just a well-put-together person. Jesus isn't saying that you can't just acknowledge the fact that, oh, I think that person's a beautiful person. No, that's not what he's talking about here. The word translated maybe in your Bibles as look at a woman lustfully, a more kind of just direct way to translate that would be wanting to have sex with them. Desiring, making a plan to sleep with that person. And even though he directs it here at men, this applies to men and women just the same. Jesus is saying it's not just enough to not have adultery with, to not commit adultery with them. Wanting to have sex with someone that you're not married to is just the same. And this is entirely against the grain, if we're being honest, about how a lot of us think about sex today. A lot of, you know, maybe just kind of modern thought. Maybe you're here today, maybe you're not a Christian, um, church isn't really your thing, maybe, maybe you would agree with this. A lot of modern people would think, no, 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 the right thing to do isn't to repress your sexuality, but to express your sexuality. As long as everybody knows that there's no strings attached, why can't we just go around and sleep with who we want to? And to be honest, I mean, it, there's some, seems like sound logic in that, in, you know, at first. But the problem is, it doesn't get at the meaning of what sex really is in the first place. The Bible says that sex is an outflow of the covenant relationship of marriage. Now, a covenant is something where two people become one, legally, socially, financially, emotionally, spiritually. It is the best type of relationship that you could imagine, right? Because in an ideal world, if you're married, you know this doesn't always work out this way, but in an ideal world, you are completely united, completely committed, completely focused on the needs of the other person. I mean, who wouldn't want to be in a relationship like that? And sex, the Bible says, is then a way to display, but then also to deepen that union, that covenant union you have with that other person. And so to have sex with someone that you're not united and committed and focused on their needs for, it's ultimately using them to fulfill your own needs. You know, Tim Keller, who's a, He's an author now, used to be a pastor up in Manhattan. Says, sex apart from marriage becomes a product we consume if we find someone attractive enough in quality and low enough in price. If the quality goes down or the cost goes up, we can walk away because there's no covenant. In other words, what Keller's saying is that just like anger, lust, is turning someone from an image bearer into an object. I mean, did you hear what he said there? They're not a person, they're a product that we consume. Meaning, even if we're physically attracted to them, even if we're emotionally attracted to them, but we haven't united and committed and fully given ourselves to them in a covenant, then if we're sleeping with them, we're using them. And to a certain degree, they're using you too. And now I say that not at all to shame anybody here, but to show the gravity of what Jesus is talking about here 
in the Bible's view on sex and adultery. And now the Pharisees, if they were sitting here listening to all this, or if we could take a modern person and just whoop, put them back in a time machine in, into the first century the Pharisees are, they would have gone, right, Jesus, totally agree with everything you are saying. Amen. We agree with all of that. That's why we say you can look but not touch. And Jesus says, nope. That's never been the point. Wanting to have sex with someone that you're not in a covenant with is still turning that person into an object of your gratification. It's still taking a person made in God's image and seeing them not as this valuable, beautifully made person, but instead mentally objectifying them and utilizing them for your short-term emotional gratification with no commitment to them at all. I mean, this is one of the big myths today about pornography, that, that it's just an individual thing. It's just you and the computer screen and that's it. No, that's not the case at all. It's shaping the way you view the people on the screen. It's shaping the way you view yourself. It's shaping the expectations that you put on your spouse. And now I, I'm not trying to shame anybody in that at all. Believe me, believe me, I can tell you. I know the deeply connected web of things in your life that contribute to sins of lust. But God is saying through this here in Jesus, that's not how I view them. No, I'm so committed. I'm so self-giving to people. I'm so loving. I gave up my own son for them. And I gave him up for you too. You see, even if we don't buy into the modern view of sex, we can still miss the heart of the law. Right? We can still fall into the trap the Pharisees thought. That's right, Jesus Really lay into those modern people. Let them know. But next, Jesus gives us this iconic picture here of what it looks like when we do capture the heart of the law. He says in verse 28, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better to lose one part of your body than to have your whole body thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, Cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, the right hand, right eye in Jesus' day, those were the most valuable two of the pair. And some people throughout centuries have taken this literally. I see by the shape of us all walking in here today, none of us uh, have fallen into that trap, and so applaud you on that. He's not talking about literally plucking out your eye, cutting off your hand. He's talking about metaphorically. Jesus is saying, be ready to radically remove any sort of temptation in your life that would cause you to fall in a sin of lust or any other sin, really. Because when we grasp not just the letter of the law, but the heart of it too, we become concerned not just with physically objectifying someone, but mentally objectifying them too. We see people with such dignity that we want to radically remove anything that tempts us to see them as anything else but a beautiful image bearer made by God. You see, a lot of times I've read this verse my whole life and thought, right, it's talking about me, what I need to do to make sure I don't fall into sin. And Jesus is saying, yes, but it, it's more than just you. 
If this whole person devotion to God that he wants comes into your life in this instance, it's also going to affect all the other people in your life as well. That you would be tempted to mentally objectify for your gratification. So in showing us this whole person devotion that God wants for us, we see through the tongue the heart of murder. That helps us see our words and what we say in a new way. And when we look at the eye, we see the heart of adultery, and it helps us look at what we look at in a new way. And really, all this shows us is that the two most common ways, the two ways that on our own, you and I, naturally relate to God and to other people, don't work. That the modern view of living that says, I don't follow God's law, therefore I'm righteous. And that the Pharisee's way of living that says, no, 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 I follow the letter of the law, therefore I'm righteous. Neither of those work. Both don't bring any flourishing in your life. Both lead to death, both lead to destruction, both lead to what the passage says, the fires of hell. And so where do we find then this greater righteousness, this whole person devotion that brings flourishing, not just to us, but to everyone else around us as well? Well, lastly, to see that, we need to look at the cross. To find this true flourishing Jesus is welcoming us into, this true picture of the good life, we need to see the cross. Because through it, see the heart of God. You know, Jesus said something profound in these verses when he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, in doing that, what he's doing is putting himself as equal with the one who gave the law in the first place. In other words, what Jesus is saying in that moment is God and I are one. Meaning that a couple of verses later in verse 48 when Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect or you must be of single-minded devotion as your heavenly father is of single-minded devotion, he could have swapped out his own name in there. Jesus was the perfect, wholly devoted man to God. He obeyed in every way possible, not just the letter of the law, but the heart of it too. Jesus never saw God's image bearers as objects. He never just destructively destroyed people with his words. He never viewed someone just as a means for his own personal gratification. And if anything that we've looked at this morning has sunk in right now, then that probably feels pretty crushing until we see where Jesus is standing right now. Do you know where Jesus is in chapter 5 of Matthew? Earth. Now why would God come to earth? Why would Jesus leave a throne of glory and come and be a man? Was it just to show us an example of what this greater whole person righteousness looks like? Was it just to give us a pep talk on how to be better? No, no, Jesus must have had something else in mind. Three times in Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem and there be crucified on a Roman cross. And at the end of the book of Matthew in chapter 27, we see Jesus beaten, mocked, 
nailed to a cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he breathed his last breath and dies. Now, what is God doing on a cross? I mean, Jesus starts his whole ministry in Matthew 4 by saying, repent, the kingdom of God is hand has come. How has the kingdom of God come when its king has just died? Here's what was happening. On the cross, Jesus lets himself be murdered to endure the fires of hell that is the wrath of God for what we deserved for our sin that the prophets in the Old Testament call our spiritual adultery. And when we look at this, we see not the heart of the law, we don't even see the heart of us, we see the heart of God that loves you so much. He sent his only son to come and be extinguished so that you could flourish, despite the fact that we don't keep the letter or the heart of the law, and in defiance of the fact that on our own, we could never fully keep the heart of the law. You see, we can't manufacture in our hearts this whole person devotion to God. That's the whole point. If we could, Jesus would have never had to come. What you need isn't more spiritual elbow grease. What you need is supernatural grace. And when you look at the cross, when you see Christ our King stretched out on it, dying for you, the Apostle Paul says, when you look at that, when you see the heart of God beating for you, It's then that we find this whole person devotion to God, this change in our hearts where we truly find flourishing. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess on our own, none of us truly keep the heart of your law. That even though you call us to this whole person devotion, we we can't manufacture it on our own. Jesus, thank you that on the cross you died for my failure to keep not just the heart of the law, but the letter of it too. Holy Spirit, we pray right now that you would press this message deep into our hearts that we would embody this whole person flourishing and truly find the good life in the rule and reign of King Jesus. Amen.